It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Hi, everyone. Hi. Thank you so much for being here on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, it's really nice to be here in Portland. Um, this is the last stop of our Pacific Northwest tour. We were in Seattle, uh, Olympia, and now here. Uh, and it's just been so nice to kind of just be able to learn a lot more about what happened on the Pacific Northwest in the summer of 2020. Um, how, you know, kind of like what went down, uh, and it's been a nice way to kind of reflect together. So hopefully that will continue happening tonight here. And we're really eager to learn about, um, you know, Portland specifically, right? Um, you know, obviously we read and know, uh, have comrades, but it's, it's really nice to kind of have that space to collectively reflect. Um, so yeah, maybe we can introduce ourselves a little bit and then get into it. Yeah, sure. Um, and once again, it's been great to be out here and to just hear from people, um, their experiences in 2020. The book doesn't pretend to be the comprehensive history of 2020. I don't know if such a thing is even possible. So we're not here to make a bunch of proclamations. We're actually really looking forward to the Q&A, where we hopefully hear from some of you all about what you experienced. And then after the event, when you can come and tell us what you really experienced, <laughs> Um, so do you want to, do you want to tell these people who we are? Yeah. So, um, my name is Jana, uh, Jared. <laughs> so we, uh, we actually know each other from way back, uh, when, and it's actually, I think it's an important part of the, what brought us together to write, to write this, uh, and to reflect on the George Floyd rebellion and to talk about its political significance. Um, so Jared and I go back to, uh, the Occupy movement. Uh, we met during the, basically during Occupy and the moments when, uh, Occupy ended and a lot of people were kind of going back to, uh, organizing. Um, and in New York, what that looked like was that, you know, people went back to the neighborhoods they lived in, their workplaces and just tried to, you know, come together and figure things out. Right. Um, so, we met during Occupy. I went back to the Bronx where um, I, I lived and where I grew up, um, and I joined kind of the local occupiers there. And we did a lot of work around uh, against police violence, tenant rights. Um, and it was kind of like an interesting mix of both mutual aid, but really taking seriously like study and taking seriously organizing and trying to form like, I guess, country groups. <laughs> Sorry, this yeah. language, right? Like to, to kind of base, basically be really serious revolutionaries that are trying to build a base of political power in the Bronx that would challenge the nonprofits, uh, which are really an important class layer that hopefully we'll get into today, 
um, and the local politicians um, and to kind of provide a, a different political voice for folks um, that, you know, that is not just like terrible liberal reforms. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Johnny hit the nail on the head. We both came out of um, the Occupy Wall Street um, and we were in New York City which was a dizzying spectacle, you know, tens of thousands of people in the streets. Uh, and it was actually one of my favorite things about Occupy to see all of these local activist celebrities who thought they were hot shit show up to the park and nobody knew who they were and nobody <laughs> cared, right? So that was awesome. The downside to it is nobody cared about any of us or, any, or anybody, really. Um, and so we came out of this experience thinking that we needed to be more serious about organization. Um, that we um, we had kind of missed an opportunity um, to, to intervene and to shape what ultimately became this kind of rote activist exercise in occupying these parks over and over again, right? Um, and so I got involved in um, a ton of projects that didn't amount to too much, if we're real, um, some workplace organizing, organizing around you know local hospital closures, so-called social reproduction. But all the while, Jana and I were we're really pushing for the creation of um, what I understand that a lot of you have out here, which is just a network of comrades who think together, right? Who develop like a common political orientation, a common vocabulary, a common like kind of tactical sensibility. And so then when these moments arise um, and the, you know, the, the horizon of the possible suddenly expands a lot in a short amount of time, um, you're able to make the most of it, right? And I think what, um, the, the campaign that I'm the proudest of, right, from that period was the Trayvon Martin Organizing Committee. Yeah. So, and again, I think this is a common theme, and maybe in the Q&A we could talk about, like, right, sometimes, like, we, are, we build those networks, they fall apart, but they're really important, these moments of upsurge, right, um, and should be really taken seriously as a political question. But so we kind of were confronted a few years later with um, the the killing of Trayvon Martin, right? And what that meant in terms of galvanizing so many people um, under the banner of Black Lives Matter to take to the streets to protest uh, racist state violence um, and to kind of really politicize a new generation um, around the question of, of, of state violence, right? And uh, racism and... Um, as we're going to talk about also kind of really a symbol of like austerity in the U.S. and, and like just late capitalist hell. But um, so I think part of the Trayvon Martin committee, again, we, we tried to kind of intervene and we thought, you know, in this moment of popular upsurge. Right. Um, and it's interesting to kind of reflect about tw- uh, uh, 2012, uh, 2014 with Ferguson and Baltimore with the hindsight of 2020, right? Yeah. Because when Trayvon Martin protests, the first iteration of Black Lives Matter hit the street, you know, we were like, this is crazy. This is awesome. Like young people being like, F the cops, like taking to the streets, like blockading, doing things that we thought like American society was just like, we were never going to see in our lifetime, you know? And then just like, just experience 2020 <laughs> and just see like how much those yeah. kind of like tactics have just, you know, have just kind of like really up, you know, up the ante, right, in that way. But I think the Trayvon Martin organizing community was really important. I think uh, when you put both like the Occupy movement and the Black Lives Matter movement side by side, right, these are the most quintessential and obviously no doppel a little later on, 
there are like these important moments and blips of upsurge that have been happening for the past decade in American life that have really politicized so many people, right? Um, that have taken kind of, um, that have participated in them. Yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways on their face, you know, Occupy Wall Street, um, Black Lives Matter were very different movements, right? And they're certainly very different in terms of the types of people who responded to the slogans. Um, but something that we've tried to do in our work is situate um, these movements within a broader um, trajectory of kind of global capitalist turbulence and austerity, right? The um, Occupy was the response of a particular strata of the American middle class that realized that they would not have a life that resembled those of their parents, right? If you remember the, the we are the 99%, meme where someone would tell their story on a sign um the story generally ran like i did everything i was told uh i went to college i got this degree i took out all this debt and i was supposed to be the boss and now i'm not the boss someone else is my boss i'm never going to be the boss right it was just kind of the failure of social mobility or the failure to even sustain your your parents class position right um black lives matter um responded to a different class strata in the United States, right? Um, working class African-Americans uh, and the way that austerity impacts life in those communities is, is comes in a violence that's a lot more direct, right? In the form of actual police violence, right? Um, but in a lot of ways, these are just two different expressions of the growing disposability of life in American society, right? As austerity just grinds daily conditions downward and quite frankly, uh, global capital has less of a use for Americans and America. And America is basically being kind of left behind, right, uh, in this um, increasingly global world, right? Um, and so we've tried our best to kind of theorize these movements as very different ex responses to a kind of the same kind of totalizing condition. Yeah. And in many ways, I think... Um a lot of us who are participating in these moments is like, I think needs to also make these connections to the global picture, right? That uh, what's happening in the United States um, is is a very specific reaction to, as Jared was highlighting, to these forces of global capitalism, but that we see similar struggles developing elsewhere, right? I mean, it was no coincidence that like, it wasn't just Occupy in the yeah. United States, right? It was uh, Arab Spring, it was the square movement, right? Uh, there was kind of, yeah, started it off, right? Yeah. So there was, um, there's kind of a general sense, um, that capitalism has hit, you know, real limits, right? That since the 19th, we have been in this like long protracted class struggle with one side <laughs> constantly just beating the shit out of us. Um, you know, and this, you know, people are essentially fighting back, right? So we're seeing kind of these popular upsurges that, kind of crescent, right, and then go down every so often, responding to these particular um, moments of austerity, right? And and I think the Black Lives Matter movement, too, is, is so important to, 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 Ameri to American social life, right? This kind of uh, a very particular, um, uh, like, discussion of state violence, right, of how we could actually see what austerity has done to working class communities of color through policing, through the criminalization of everyday life, right? The ways in which, um, you know, one in every three, 37 Americans has a criminal record, right? So the state has been such a brutal force in American social life. It has completely 
disinvested um, its role, whatever small role it had in terms of providing social services and the social safety net. And, you know, it kind of has this like brutal repressive force that I think is very specific in many ways in the United States, uh, given the history of race, of race relations, of uh, slavery, of anti-blackness, right? Um, and I think in many ways that was, I think, a, a really important challenge also to occupy Wall Street, right? Uh, but again, we're kind of seeing different, like, uh, these different layers of American society. Yeah, and since we both kind of cut our teeth in New York activist world, uh, one of the overriding themes throughout a lot of our work is the nonprofit sector um, and its use as a counterinsurgent force. Um, and I think the word counterinsurgency is thrown around a, like a little too generously in the wake of 2020. And it now basically just means anyone you f- disagree with politically. Pardon my French. I didn't see there were children here. Um, okay. Oh, he's got, oh, he got headphones on. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's the correct response. Good parenting. <laughs> <Yeah>. Very good. <laughs> um, okay. But, but so like the, the, the nonprofit sector, um, in New York is, it's a particular animal that I don't think you have anywhere else in the country, uh, but it does teach us a lot about how the how the progressive wing of the ruling class is attempting to deal with social crisis. Um, and in particular, you can look at an institution like the Ford Foundation, uh, which was an early funder of Black Lives Matter. Um, the Ford Foundation has distinguished itself um, over the last century um, as a, a far-thinking ruling class organ that looks at moments of social crisis. Um, and rather than saying, how do we smash this, right? Like when Trump sent his little federales out here and tried to get you all to go home and it didn't work, right? Um, they, the Ford Foundation understands that, right? Um, and so rather than just saying, how do we knock all these people on the head and make them go home? Organizations like Ford say, how do we identify the sections of this movement that are business friendly, right, that aren't going to actually challenge capital and that are actually going to help us reform things that we don't like about capital, right? A lot of, a lot of progressive elites aren't happy with police murder, right? Let's be real. Like a lot of these liberal elites want to live in a more beautiful world, right? And so they, they look at these things that they don't actually like. Real nasty structural racism that's manifested in things like police sticking dogs on protesters, right? The, the elites in the Ford Foundation didn't want that. They wanted a more kind of colorblind class domination, right? Um, and so Ford and tons of other nonprofit f- uh, uh, foundations that you that they read off the names of every hour on NPR, the William T. Grant Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, right? These organizations have become a very important force, not in repressing movements, but in steering them into a business-friendly direction. Right. And something that we saw in uh, in the wake of Black Lives Matter. Right. Before the movement even left Ferguson, it was already awash in tens of millions of dollars. Right. Um, Which would end up propping up all of these various self-proclaimed leaders who have many of whom have now been revealed to be nothing more than grifters. Right. People who, you know, rented out mansions and bought themselves all kinds of things off BLM funds, right? Um, but what we also saw was there are a lot of serious organizations that came out of this. And in New York City, where we were, and right, you can all tell us later if it's, if you've had this experience here, 
we saw that nonprofit organizations were actually serving a function that had been kind of vacated by the organized left, which was a place where young people who are new to politics, new to protests, wanted to change the world, so on and so forth, could actually plug in and go to their first protests and like learn basic things. Like, um, and so, and, and more importantly, to get a job. Um, you know, there's, and by this point, there's been about $10 billion thrown at BLM and various HBCUs uh, by the American uh, ruling class. Um, and a whole lot of young people, especially young people of color with, with progressive or radical politics, have worked in this sector, have taken employment in this sector, and they're trying to, they're trying to realize some form of liberation there, right? And what, so what we saw in New York was there was this whole sector that had been activated by kind of like old guard, like ruling class money. But what they were trying to do was different. They were trying to push beyond the bounds of what the funders expected of them. And it generated this whole kind of political milieu that was somewhere between reformist and revolutionary. And it brought all of the contradictions of Black Lives Matter into the fore, right? The old guard parochialism, the sexism, the homophobia, right? That, that was the baggage of a lot of the civil rights organizers. That was challenged by this new generation. And then by the time 2020 kicked off, we saw that there were a whole lot of people ancillary to the nonprofit sector who were, who were not easily controlled by this money. Yeah. And just, I think a couple of other things to add too is like, you know, I think it's, a, it's important to kind of re- obviously like recognize this like long history that these nonprofits have in engaging black revolutionary movements and revolutionaries and kind of, you know, in this and co-opting, right? So it's not just brutal repression, but also like the nonprofits are kind of this important layer as in a lot of big cities, the state has vacated whatever is yeah. responsibility to the poor, right? So it's like any kind of social service is met through the nonprofits, right? So they play like this really interesting kind of class buffer, right? In terms of if you're a working class person, uh, you know, the people that you encounter the most are like these social service agencies, right? These like these nonprofits. So there's that part. And I think there's also the part of just how much, um, and so many people have written about this, right? Like how much uh, American life has changed after the 1960s, right? In terms of like, race, class dynamics, right, in the ways in which cities, uh, you know, in the wake of the civil rights movement, in the wake of, you know, uh, the on the heels of black power, right, kind of created this like really important class layer of black politicians, mayors, right, chiefs of police. Um, and, you know, I think in many ways, uh, that was also, you know, a very important part of Black Lives Matter, right? So it wasn't just New York. I mean, we saw this yeah. in Ferguson. We saw this in Baltimore. Like, what happened after Ferguson, right? It was like, oh, you know, after the rebellion, it was like, we're going to, like, build nonprofits, right? We're going to build, like, this social service thing for young people to get these, like, shitty jobs. And this is going to solve the major contradictions of life in Ferguson, Right. Um, and so I think that kind of like those kinds of solutions, right, uh, to the major contradictions of life in the United States by 2020 just proved too untenable. Right. Yeah. Uh, we are talking about not only the murder uh, of a black man in broad daylight over twenty dollar counter alleged twenty dollar counterfeit bill. Right. But we're talking about an America that was really coming apart at the seams because of a global pandemic. Right. Um 
you know, Americans were scrambling. Uh, the, the idea that America was somehow like a first world country, I don't know who had that illusion, <laughs> but like 2020 really proved that wrong, right? Like I was like, I had a moment where I was like, damn, like my, fa- like I escaped one third world country to come to, you know, so my, I was like, damn, my parents picked the wrong country you to come to. should have gone to England or something. <laughs> we should have gone, we should have yeah. followed the rest people to England and Germany uh, for the real good social democracy. I'm but, glad you met <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in retrospect, I guess. Uh, but, you know, so I think that, you know, hospitals were overrun. Um, the kind of, like, the individualism that's a, at core of American society popped up, like antisocial behavior, right? Like, people were like, I'm going to do what I need to do. Like, I'm not going to listen to you. Like, you know, so I, so I think all of those contradictions yeah. really erupted um, and I think for, for the first time, um, that kind of nonprofit solution, uh, the, the reforms, right, that were such an important part of the first iteration of Black Lives Matter, uh, just were no longer on the horizon, right? People were like, we just don't see how you can make the police nice. Because when we go to these protests, there is no such thing as a nice cop, right? Because yeah. even the people who are peacefully protesting, whatever that means, right, it's like they're getting beaten up. Um, and that was just like co- a constant thing that people saw over and over again, right? And in terms of the global pandemic, is like you're seeing like the cops have such nice stuff. They have like all this gear, all this like crazy military gear that you're like, is that even humanly possible for a police department to have? But you live in a neighborhood where schools have been defunded, mm-hmm. right? Like Chicago, where we live, Rahm Emanuel closed down public schools. Like he's like, yeah, I don't think you guys need to go to public school. <laughs> like I'm going to close, right? So I think. I think those kind of contradictions, uh, the COVID pandemic is a really important backdrop to the, to the George Floyd rebellion, right? Um, it kind of, it really brought all those contradictions to a tipping point, uh, where so many people were moved, um, to take to the streets and say, like, that's it. Enough is enough, right? And I think that kind of collective fury was unleashed, um, and, contained all of the previous lessons that uh, that folks had been learning on the street through these different waves of Black Lives Matter protests, right? So kind of the tactics people used, like completely just like uh, had changed so much, right? Since 2012, when we're in the street and we're like, like saying F the police was like the most radical <laughs> thing, right? Everybody was like, oh my God, I could say that, you know? And we were like, yeah, like all the young people were saying, we're like, okay, I guess we could say it, <laughs> you know? But it's like, I think that's very different from what we saw in 2020, right?
to once again bring it back to the fact that we do live in a massive world, right? Um, you saw a lot of the uh, stopgap measures that had been used to contain capitalist crisis since the 1970s. I'm thinking about intense fiscal austerity, the rise of mass incarceration, and the replacement of social services with policing, right, in the United States, as an accompaniment to capital just fleeing the country and source of, you know, cheaper labor, right? All these different stopgaps suddenly themselves became the source of crisis, right? So suddenly hyper-policing is the, uh, the object of um, a massive kind of proto-insurrection. Right. And this is hyper policing is the way that the American one of the ways the American ruling class kind of got out of the mess that it found itself in in the 1960s. Right. When it could not afford or did not want to anymore support um, the, the kind of um, nascent welfare state um, that had been built from the New Deal to the Great Society. Right. So the police stepped in and took that burden. Right. This is not our original argument. Yeah. You know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has written about this. And it also just happened, right? And so there's that. Yeah. Um, and it but, completely changed the, tra- the transformation of cities, right? I think that's something to keep in mind that, of course, as we talk about the rebellion, like there's not one rebellion, right? It was like every city, yeah. every small, like there were small towns, big cities, medium-sized cities, right? Like all of America was engulfed in it in their own ways, right? But I think, um, I think it's really important to recognize that after... Uh, the post-war era, especially like American cities have dramatically changed in really important ways. Right. Um, and that change has been, you know, kind of like this local phenomenon of just the transformation of capitalism. Right. So deindustrialization has been a really important theme. Right. It has kind of created a large group of people that have been essentially kept out of the labor market. Right. There's no jobs. Uh, the jobs that exist are now in these like service work, retail, right? Um, you know, so I think that th- those kinds of like important transformations, um, are, you know, should kind of be taken into account, right? And how in many ways policing was responding to these complete changes and transformations where states were saying, no, we're gonna, you know, <laughs> we're not gonna expand the welfare state, right? Uh, so we're going to instead expand policing, we're going to spend a kind of expand that kind of um, response to the crisis. Yeah. And so the I think one of the main reasons that we're so obsessed with the rebellion in 2020, besides the fact that we had cool. a lot of fun and also got super fucking traumatized at the same time, right, um, is that it really is one of these like kind of um, these, these, these historical crossroads where you can see tons of trends that are just central to the world that we live in converging in a way that kind of unfortunately or fortunately or both foreshadows what we can expect yeah. in the future, right? We saw basically um, how contentious American society is. We saw um, how violent American society is. We saw a whole lot of people willing to throw down on the side of liberation. And we saw a whole lot of people willing to... <laughs> throw down on the for, on the side of reaction, and quite frankly, they have more guns and they know how to use them, right? And so, I mean, it was this, it was this moment, right, where so much, so much reckoning, to use a kind of much maligned term, so much reckoning with, you know, long-standing historical trends was affected in this really kind of tumultuous, like just uh, unpredictable, chaotic scene that kind of gives us a glimpse, right, of kind of 
things we can expect to see, right? Because capitalism is not going to get its way out of this crisis by more cops, more austerity. I mean, I would, at this point in my life, I would love a global new deal, but something tells me it's not in the cards, right? You know, if Thomas Piketty can do it, God bless him. Um, and so it's like, we can, I think we can expect to see these contradictions get deeper, the situation get more serious, the stakes get higher, right? And so this is why we've we've just become, become fixated on this moment as something that teaches us a lot, not just about the past, but about kind of the future. And I think to kind of um, to, to continue on that point, I think something that we're very clear about is like, actually, if you look at American life since the 60s, police violence... Um, has been the tinder that has sparked important yeah. rebellions, right? Important, uh, like numbers of people coming together to do something, to respond to it, right? So it's not something to be taken lightly. Um, and I think in this way, like we, we really kind of want to provide this like powerful corrective to a lot of folks on the left that don't see police, like struggles against police violence and state violence as like parts of the class struggle, right? We're very clear, like, this is a clear example yeah. of how class struggle unfolds in the United States. Right? I don't think any of those people are here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. We all agree, we, right? But I, I think, think that's like that, that, that's really here, important, but. right? Because I think there is this kind of sense that oh, but it's like you know, people are not fighting about like their workplaces or like things that people associate with like. Um, Why aren't they saying class yeah, more? Yeah, and it's like no. This is how like how people do experience class struggle and class tensions, right? Is yeah. you know, is through racist police violence. So it's, it's a very interesting, I think, thing to also think about. And the fact that a lot of the contradictions that, you know, led to the George Floyd rebellion um, are not going away, right? And they're kind of like growing to, they're growing more intense. Um, so something that I think we should kind of talk about and take seriously is that something like the George Floyd rebellion will happen again, right? Like that kind of upsurge will happen. So what are, you know, we kind of tried to approach the book. What, what, what is the significance of what happened, right? Like what emerged? How can we engage with it? Um, and something that we argue is really important is that a lot of people got turned on to abolitionism, right? That abolition, yeah. uh, kind of captured a, to some degree, right? The political imagination of a lot of people who were out on the streets, right? who were like literally smashing shit up. I mean, that's abolition. Right? They were not like carrying this, like we went to the courthouse and it was like defund hate or something. You know, they were not doing that, right? They were like, <laughs> you know, they were like, you know, so I think that that's like an important part of it that we wanted to address. And for us, we really wanted to address abolition because we believe that it was this really important, um, you know, milieu that actually entered into this political vacuum Right, created where, you know, there was not a lot of, uh, like political coherence, right? Around like, what are we doing except the fact that we're really pissed about what happened and we're gonna like go to the streets and do and it up, right? So an abolition really provided this almost like understanding of why people are doing what they're doing, right? And the argument was essentially this, right? That American society is total shit, is very racist to the core. But also the state has completely withdrawn any responsibility to address any yeah. kind of social services, social goods. It has replaced that with this terrible policing, incarceration. Um, and that's what we have to contend with, right? Um, 
And I think at the core, it's really important, right? All revolutionaries are abolitionists, right? Because we, you know, revolutionaries want to live in a society where the, where police and prisons don't exist, but that also the conditions that these institutions manage don't freaking exist, right? Yeah. And I was really surprised in 2020 by, so I'm in my late thirties by how many people, like, uh, radicals my age were like rolling their eyes at abolitionism and complaining about abolitionism. First of all, have you taken a look at anti-globalization politics lately? Because <laughs> some of that stuff is aged like milk, right? This is, I mean, abolitionism was the input that a lot of young radicals uh, got into kind of uh, class struggle politics, anti-system politics, right? Um, and like Jana was saying, it has, it's very compelling. It has a whole story. Right. It's, it has a story of American history. It has a story of how we got to where, where we are. It has a set of practical uh, tasks that you can take up. Right. And I mean, even if you dislike abolitionism and wish that it wasn't so popular, um, it succeeded in a lot of ways uh, because um, you had a lot of people going real hard for about two decades. Right. Since yeah. the kind of resurgence, right, of, of critical resistance and all the rest. Um, going hard in, a, in tons of local campaigns, right? Popularizing their politics, right? And communicating to, to, to people in, in comprehensible ways, right? Playing this kind of hegemony game in universities, right? Um, and just creating this kind of national network of people who speak the same language, who can take similar actions without knowing each other, Right. So when when the rebellion kicked off, I mean, there were a lot of people who I have tons of respect for who distinguished themselves in just smashing maximum shit. Right. Uh, and that and and they would say, Jared, why 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 would we need to have a political message? That's the political message. Right. The meme. Right. Uh, and so but meanwhile, abolitionists um, had a clear political discourse right? They could work with each other without knowing each other, right? And so these defund campaigns popped up all over the country, almost like, almost overnight, because this was a crew that had really worked on its coherence and consistency over the years, right? Because, I mean, I hate to say it, but people generally take action and then try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing, right? I've had so many conversations with people in these big uh, mass events over the years where it was like, holy shit, two weeks ago, I never thought I'd be standing in the middle of the West Side Highway. You know, it's like, yeah, me neither, man. You know, it's like people people are compelled to take action, right, in these big moments, right? Uh, and once they're, once they're out there, right, they want to make sense of why they're doing what they're doing, right? And I hate to, I, dare I say, like, if somebody doesn't have a clear political understanding of how what they're doing in the here and now bridges to some kind of practical outcome, liberated future, so on and so forth, once the thrill of playing cat and mouse with the cops wears off, once they catch a case, once they get shot with a rubber bullet, once they see someone get murdered, right, they're probably not going to stick around, right? Um, people need politics. You can't abstract uh, from the need for politics. And that's what abolitionists brought to 2020. And that's why they walked away with so many of the marbles. Yeah. And in that way, I mean, I think as 
So we kind of wrote, uh, we wrote this book to kind of engage with that, with abolitionists, right? With like the young people who have been t- turned on to those politics, who, you know, are like, I'm an abolitionist and I came out of 2020. I'm going to go back to the mutual aid networks. I'm going to like yeah. engage in local struggles against police violence and jails, right? Um, and I think we also wanted to be in conversation. And I think this is really important. Like we're getting old, <laughs> right? So it's like, it's important to, I think, start, <laughs> Jared's like, speak for yourself. <laughs> like, I hear you, Jared. Um, but I think it's, it's important to kind of engage. Um, and that's, I think that's a really important something that we also missed, uh, with the summer of 2020 to engage all the young people that got politicized in the streets, right? Mm-hmm. Where did they go? Uh, and it's a question I always keep asking myself. Where did young people go after the first wave of BLM, right? Um, and, you know, some, yeah, went to nonprofits. But, man, for those of us or people who have worked in nonprofits or something similar, like, that runs real quick, right? Like, yeah. you know, you're like, I'm done with this yeah. shit, you know? So it's like, I think there's so many young people that are politicized, are looking for a political home. So I think we wanted to engage. And abolition, in many ways, has become that, right? So yeah. we wanted to engage right. with that. And also say, hey, there are great things, right? But we also have a lot of questions, <laughs> right? And we kind of do a lot of that in the book, uh, in chapter five, where we kind of, you know, um, engage with this long history of abolition. As Jared said, it kind of kicks off in the 90s, which is a really interesting time in American life because that's when Bill Clinton is like, yeah, about that welfare state, yeah. I'm going to end it, right? Um, so it's like welfare as we know it ended. So it's not a coincidence that, uh, you know, prison, like abolitionist politics are picking up at a time and making sense of the fact that the welfare state is just done. Right. And that this was at a time when, like, you know, like uh, people of color, black women fought so long, so hard to get into the welfare roles. And the welfare state is like, no, you know, so I think it's a really important moment. And we kind of do the history, um, you know, and kind of go back to the 60s to yeah. even to, to abolition of slavery. Right. Which. Yeah. So abolition has this like awesome long history, right? So we do a lot of that, but we also engage with kind of the questions that abolition poses, right? So if the point is to abolish jails and prisons and which police, is righteous, yeah, which is righteous, righteous, we agree. Um, how do we get there? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, if we want to build a world without police, without jails, without prisons, without the conditions that these messed up institutions manage, how do we get there? Yeah. Right. Um, what are the kinds of organizations, networks, uh, ways that we're going to get from point A to point B and to point Z, right? Um, and yeah. these are kind of the questions we engage, uh, right, in terms of proposing this. And I think one of the most important interventions we try to make is what is going to be our relationship to the state, yeah. right? So I think something that was really important about the summer of 2020 was just like this massive rejection of the American state through the use of mass illegality to some degree, right? Awesome. Um, so what is our relationship going forward to the state, right? A lot of times we see that uh, when it comes to like, or, like abolitionist organizing, you know, a lot of it is like mutual aid organizations that kind of have this like, like what is the relationship to the state, right? Like are we just trying to build on the margins of the state yeah. and just trying to carve out something, um, you know, and in many ways end up being overburdened with essentially helping out with austerity, right? Um, or do we challenge head on, um, you know, the, the existing social order, right? And that's not very a peaceful thing, right? That, that re- that's going to require a lot of 
more summers of 2020, right? Well, and that's the ultimate question that we want to pose to abolitionists. Um, because as we know, whenever a political tendency becomes popular, right, there are elements of it that become like super cringe, right? So now there's abolition, self-care, and abolition, Venmo me money, and all this like, oh, there's like a lot, a lot of grifters, a lot of like stuff that doesn't really make a lot of sense, um, a lot of stuff that's very obviously reformist, right? But it's like, don't use the most, the, 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 the silliest manifestations of a political tendency to, to discredit the serious side of it, right? That's just not, that's not principled. Um, and so what we, what, what we say to our abolitionist comrades is like, we want to live in a society beyond police and prisons, right? Uh, for us, that means we live in a post-capitalist society. Right. And a lot of abolitionists would say, yeah, right on. Like, this is, yeah, we want to live in a post-capitalist society too. So it's like, yeah, like Jean was saying, how do we get there? Right. Is it something that we can do through the organs of liberal democracy? Right. If you read Alex Vitale's The End of Policing, he basically says yes. Right. He says, you know, we need to uh, work with community organizations and local politicians to turn the United States into something similar to a, a Northern European welfare state. Which I'm like, have you been to lately? <laughs> it's kind of falling apart. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I mean, it's like... They're just yeah, turning into yeah. just A fortress Europe that's like, states. you're immigrant, yeah. you're Muslim, you yeah. black you out, like, yeah. Yeah, um, and so, the, I mean, there is, like, there is like a very serious kind of statist liberal tradition in abolitionism. Vitaly's kind of like the king. Right. And that's the reason why he gets so far. Right. Because he's not actually challenging capitalism. Right. Um, but I mean, if if people are really interested um, in moving to a post-capitalist society, it's like, OK, like, let's talk about what that's going to take. Right. Um, and and that really just raises some of the central questions of political organization. Right. Um, the central the central questions around reform and revolution and how reforms relate to revolutionary struggle. And abolitionists have thought about this, right? There's a whole lot of smart revolutionary abolitionists. Um, you know, like the, they have this idea of the non-reformist reform, right? And it's now it's become, it's been so maligned that it can be used to, in New York, they were building new jails and they were calling it a non-reformist reform, right? But I think at the core of it, right, um, this is actually a really interesting concept that we can, that we can use. Not to answer questions, but to pose questions, right? Uh, because not like let's face it. I'm, I'm sure that the, everybody in this room has read a combined hundred thousand books, right? But none of us have the fucking answers to these questions, right? Yeah. We experiment, right? We organize in these little groups, right? Usually they fail, and we all hate each other and write statements or whatever. So it's like, <laughs> so we don't have the answers, right? But we do know. We do know that it requires experimentation. It requires thinking together and asking the right questions, right? And so that's, we really encourage everyone to like, to embrace this new current of abolitionism. There's a whole lot of people who want to live in a liberated world. Enjoying this podcast and want to support It's Going Down so we can continue to crank out more content? It's easy. Go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or the menu version on mobile that says support IGD and then you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. Without your support, IGD doesn't continue. So if you appreciate our work, 
please consider supporting us. Again, go to itsgoingdown.org on your computer or your phone and click the tab at the top or on the menu version of mobile that says support IGD. And you can give us a one-time donation or sign up to donate monthly. You can also find the link in our Collectiva social media account and in the show notes of this podcast on itsgoingdown.org. And now, back to the show. Yeah, and we should be talking with them. And I think part of it, too, is, and I think maybe this is a way to kind of wrap up and open it up to, you know, y'all's take, right? And to learn about what happened in Portland and what's happening here. So I think that's kind of what, part of why we wrote the book is we, we find, like, Summer 2020 was so great, right? But also hit real limits. Mm. And I think in a lot of our circles, it's like those limits were always posed as like external limits. Mm. It was like the police repression, um, the state repression, the nonprofits. Like, you know, and it's like, that is true. That did happen. Like people are fighting their cases still. Like a lot of messed up things happened. Like the nonprofits were real, are real, right? But there were also real limits that the rebellion itself hit, right? In terms of, and yeah. I'm sure we could talk about that also in Portland, right? That the tactics, right? That there, there was a moment that it kind of, you know, reached a moment, right? Where it's like, where do you go from here? Yeah. And I think this is why it's important to think together because in those moments, what would we have done differently, right? What would we have done differently if we had more networks, more connections with each other? What are, as a, even a small milieu, what kind of decision making could have happened that would have spread the rebellion? Or just other, you know, connected to other things, right? Connected to other messed up things of American life, right? Um, and in a way that would have brought more people into it, right? That when things, when the, the, the dust, so to speak, settled, we connected with each other and we didn't go back to, it just seems like it happened and it's like everybody just kind of like went to their lives and there's like a depression that set in, right? So it's like how, like, so we, we're also doing this in the hope of also kind of reigniting um, that idea of like the importance of like those connections and networks. Yeah, actually, the whole reason this this tour exists, as much as I love the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> Jean knows I love sleeping in my own bed far more. Um, but we did a presentation like this mm-hmm. in in Chicago, and some of the comrades were like, "Yeah, this is great because we haven't really had that much space to have these kinds of discussions." Like people went through some really traumatic mm-hmm. shit. Right. I mean, like I saw people get murdered, like right in front of me. Right. I'm sure some people in this room also did. Right. Um, And that's that's terrible. Right. People uh, I suffered violence. Right. Once again. And so it's like it's easy to, you know, return to life and say, oh, my God, I went I went all in, you know, and nothing nothing came of it. Now all my friends hate each other and people are in jail. Right. Um, And to fall into like individualized despair. Right. But it's just. It's just such a sad outcome of an amazing collective moment, right? Um, and so we are hoping to engender to kind of reopen these discussions, right? And if people get together and form study groups and read our book and say, we determine that every argument you make is bullshit, that would be great, right? Because it would mean that people are coming together, they're discussing their experiences, right? They're trying to make sense, not just of all the bad shit, which we know about, but what some things we did right, some things we can learn about the summer, of 2020 that can help us anticipate the next move, right? And to just and, and once again, we've been hearing from people at these events like, "Wow, I haven't talked, I haven't, yeah. I, I and haven't we learned, seen any of these people yeah. in a year." Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also been really nice to learn a lot. Like something we've been thinking a lot about in this trip: how like 
fragmented the U.S. is, right? Yeah. Um, and I think part of, like, this we, <laughs> right? Like, we want a better world is, like, such a... But it's like, who is we? Right? It's kind of hard, right? Like, yeah. what do we stand for? What are we... For? Like, it's like, we, we kind of know what we're against a lot yeah. of times, right? But we don't really know what we're for, right? So hopefully, yeah. it's a way to kind of also have those discussions. And we've also learned a lot, right? I mean... We are from, you know, uh, I was in Tennessee when the summer of 2020 happened, uh, which was a very different from, you know, in the very kind of like mid-sized city, di- different from other parts of the country, different from New York, different from Chicago, you know, where you were. Um, and there's so many things that happened out here that we've been learning about. So it's just it's just like a really good space to, to talk with each other, engage each other, get to know each other. And yeah, yeah. I guess I'll, I just want to reiterate: we're going to do this for like twenty more minutes before we wrap. We're <laughs> no, we're not. Off. People have arms crossed. They're like, "You're not doing this." <laughs> no, right. I'm kidding. I just want to reiterate that, like, there's a there's a kind of hypothesis I've heard a few times that's like, okay, the the rebellion was doing everything right, and then it was defeated by the cops and the liberals, right? And I think it would be a real shame if we actually believed that. Uh, because a, there were a lot of places where there was lots and lots of space to do all kinds of other things. And something tells me we're in one of them right now, <laughs> right? Um, and that actually what ended up happening was the people who came together and were engaging in great heroic acts, right, and doing very courageous things didn't quite know what to do with the amount of freedom that they had. So... I think it would be a real shame if people walk away from 2020 thinking we have our house in order and what we need to worry about is the counterinsurgents and the cops and all the rest of it. It's like, no, 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 right? I've seen this in every big upsurge I've been involved in, right? And somebody made this point at our event in Olympia the other day. Like, it, it, you start with a tactic that's awesome, right? Like yeah. occupying a park. And you're like, right? just keep going. Just keep doing this. <laughs> and, and soon enough, that tactic yeah. becomes a fetter, Right. I mean, I remember Occupy Wall Street, like we had dwindling numbers of people. Um, and it's like, let's say we can do it. You can do a lot with a few hundred people, as you guys know, in this city. Right. And you, bet you had dwindling numbers of people that were just obsessed with retaking the shittiest piece of <laughs> public infrastructure. <laughs> that nobody I, wanted. <laughs> unless you're going to court, you are not down there. Right, the financial district. <laughs> Unless you're like a yuppie or you got a court date, yeah, no one's going down there, right? And so we were just became fixated on this park, right? Uh, and so it's like these tactics become fetters, right? If you're not thinking together, right, and think and prepared for how you can escalate and what you can do, um, and so that that's that's what we really hope to not so much offer a bunch of theses that foreclose yeah, discussion, but to really just open <laughs> it up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. And yeah, we want to hear from you guys. So we'll transition to that part. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.